Another visitor to visit Mary, Joseph and the baby Jesus was Joseph's best friend Samuel. He had been asking around in Bethlehem where had this family been and finally he was able to find out where they were. Then the two men had a long talk. Joseph, my friend, are you going to have this child circumcised? asked Samuel who had come to the stable when at last he had found out where the family stayed. But of course, answered Joseph, why not? You yourself say that he is not born like other children, said Samuel. That is correct, said Joseph, but whatever is done that is out of course of natural ways is not to be done by me, Samuel. I love this child more than I love my own life, but I must remember my place. I am only his foster father, and I have thought a lot about that, Samuel. It is a terrific responsibility for an ignorant carpenter like myself. Not so ignorant, interrupted Samuel with a loyal shake of his rough hair. Mary and I have made up our minds, pursued Joseph, to bring Jesus up very carefully and the very best we know how. Everything that should be done will be done. Fine, Joseph, but, said Samuel. So, of course, interrupted Joseph, he will be circumcised. I am going to follow the law of our people with with him in everything. Scrupulously, the law says that every little baby boy must be circumcised on the eighth day of his life. That doesn't mean the seventh or the ninth. Samuel gave a little snort, the eighth day, and not the seventh or the ninth, he scoffed. Why would such meticulousness be important to a great gentleman like God who runs the whole world? Joseph shrugged. I haven't the faintest idea, he admitted calmly. And... I doubt if I could understand, even if someone explained. But I do know what is written in the scrolls in the holy books, and that's enough. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why God chose Joseph to be the foster father of his son. He followed the law. He followed the scriptures down to the T. Samuel squinted at his friend. He loved this gentle carpenter, and yet there was something in their chemistry that was opposed. The boisterous Samuel was impatient of all obedience. He did not want to hurt Joseph, and yet something urgent in the heart pressed him on to bait and heckle. And no doubt Mary will be purified, he asked Joseph. Why not, answered Joseph. That is the custom. Why should any woman have to be purified of motherhood? Be careful of blasphemy, said Joseph. Bosh, exclaimed Samuel. 
For seven days, a woman is supposed to be unclean after her baby is born. There is no other word for it than bosh. You have to wait three and thirty days while she is allowed to touch nothing that is hallowed and a lot of other silly rules. We obey them, said Joseph crisply. Samuel said, but Joseph, isn't it still true that you think the Holy Spirit was the father of the child? Joseph answered, I know it is so. Was that sin? asked Samuel. No, said Joseph. It was sinless. Your wife was still a virgin when this child was born. Before God, yes, exclaimed Joseph. Then, if she is sinless, why must she be purified? Answer me that, Joseph. The husband of Mary laid his hand on the shoulder of his friend and smiled patiently. It was not our doing that the law of nature was altered so that this child could be born, he answered simply. We could not have done it if we wanted to. We are not lawmakers and therefore we cannot be law changers. Our business is to try to understand the laws and obey them, not find out the reasons for them, not try to make exceptions for ourselves. I haven't brains enough to fathom God, Samuel, and pardon me, old friend, neither have you. So we just act according to our lights. And thus, according to their lights, Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Anna and Jehoiakim left the stable under the inn on the fortieth day after the nativity and rode their donkeys six miles up the steep heights that led to Jerusalem. The air was warm and a pleasant breeze was fluttering through the abundant sunshine. The hills were green and the trees moved gently, and the world looked beautiful to the mother with her child in her arms. Their eyes were turned upward to take in the great glory of the capital, the proud city of walls and towers on its hold, south promontory of the bleak limestone ridge. Think of it, Mary, remarked Joseph. Some of the old residents I talked to in Bethlehem have never seen this great city so near at hand. Think of that, living so close and never bothering to go over and see. I think Nazareth is a much pleasanter place, Mary answered. With this, the others agreed. They said that Jerusalem was a great place to visit, but they would never want to live there. But the height and sweep and power of the great city stirred their imagination willy-nilly. As they came up from the gorges, the ravines and gashes in the earth, the gullies and deeps of old geological geological catastrophes and the walls of the city became more plainly clear into view. They felt again a surge of pride at being in such a big place. Now they were approaching the level of the high, irregular city wall. It was the color of a yellow cat, its great towny stones piled course on course, thirty feet high, 
As far as the eye could see, the wall continued with its eight gates and sixty watchtowers, each guarded by Herod's cutthroats. They entered that morning through the sheep's gate. In the shadow of the archway, Mary looked down into the baby's face. His eyes were open, and there was a focus to their gaze, an intelligence that startled her. It was as if this baby mind understood his first entrance into Jerusalem, and that he would come here again, and more than once, and at last to tragical ends. But the baby's eyes soon closed and he dozed off, unmindful of worldly wonders. The others looked about them with eager interest, seeing the white arches of the stadium called Bezistas, where young men were encouraged by Herod and the Romans to strengthen themselves by athletic drills for prowess in battle. Jesus must never be a soldier was the instant prayer in Mary's heart, and she turned quickly from this gladiatorial training ground to the theater where heathen plays were produced. All manner of filthy drama was shown here, its intellectual degradation matched only by the physical filth of the streets. The gentle country folk were bewildered anew at the violent contrasts in poverty and riches on every hand. Great houses and mud hovels, wide plazas and dark curling streets full of disease and crime, and high on a nearby terrace, close to the temple itself, the dazzling palace of Herod and its three military towers filled with the soldiers of the apprehensive king, who more and more lived in fear that the people would rise up and give him his just deserts. Samuel had told Joseph about the lavish iniquities of that palace, of the king's couch made of gold and ivory and white velvet, of his wives and concubines and maidservants and manservants and cooks and minstrels and dancing boys and girls and the unending round of entertainment in its halls and peristyles and banquet chambers. The four grown-ups on their mission of devotion saw the signs of wealth and pleasure on one hand and also the want and teeming discontent, unwashed pavements slippery with mortal slime and excrement lying at the base of the rich people's glory. There was barely enough water to drink in this Jerusalem, and palaces where vice played all day and all night, and lanes where hunger and leprosy crutched together. They were glad when they reached the outer gate of the temple area and found a little knot of relatives waiting to welcome them. Zachariah, joyous and very talkative beside the radiant Elizabeth, who had brought little John in her arms. Strutting forward and back, they found also the mocking but very friendly and companionable Samuel. It was not the first time that Elizabeth and Mary had met since the birth of Jesus. 
Three times in the last week, Elizabeth and Zechariah had made the journey to Bethlehem. Now they all moved inside the temple walls with happy faces and halted in the outer court to buy their ritualistic offerings. And here Mary looked to Joseph, wondering what he was going to decide. According to the law, they could purchase a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon for a sin offering, or Joseph could choose the less expensive course of buying two turtle doves or two young pigeons, depending altogether on his conscience and his purse. Feeling that he could not afford anything better, for Gabriel and Sarah had charged them plenty for the use of the stable, Joseph decided to buy two plump pigeons because he had very little money left. He picked out one and married the other, and Joseph carried them in his hands as he proceeded toward the inner temple. Looking about him, Joseph felt again that sense of belonging and community of race and history to which this temple was the symbol. Herod might have paid for it, but the people's architects designed it, the people's labor built it, and here the people drew to themselves apart from tyrants and overlords. Here they remained most peculiarly themselves, uncontaminated by any intrusion from the outer world. And here, in spite of Roman armies and puppet Arab king, they persisted in adhering to the last meticulous detail of their faith. Within earshot of Herod, who was not deaf, they came regularly not only to praise the Lord God of hosts, but to entreat him to deliver them from their conquerors. That was the principal prayer raised in the temple their oppressor had built for them. But as Mary and Joseph were about to cross the court where the offerings would be turned in and ceremonies performed, the child presented to God. The child was presented to God and there came a startling interruption. Mary, with the sleeping Jesus against her breast, was walking a little behind Joseph when a shadow fell across them. A withered figure swayed out from under a pillared archway. A purblind man tottered before them in the sun. We'll see in the next chapter, who is this old, half-blind man who hastily went to them? to say something very important.